Welcome to GLF Live, the official podcast of the Global Landscapes Forum. On this podcast, we'll be featuring a wide variety of special guests to talk about some of the most important environmental topics in the world today. We'll be speaking with scientists, youth activists, filmmakers, government ministers, and many other guests about everything from climate change to biodiversity to food to environmental justice. Each episode will be streamed live on our YouTube and social media channels before being published as a podcast, so please be sure to subscribe and follow us there if you'd like to join us live. In this launch episode, we cover one of the biggest stories of the year, the war in Ukraine, and how it's affecting our global food systems and putting millions of people on the brink of famine. We're joined by a very special guest, leading food expert Lawrence Haddad, who is the Executive Director of the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition, or GAIN. He was previously the founding co-chair and lead author of the Global Nutrition Report and director of the Institute of Development Studies, the world's leading development studies institute. We originally spoke with Lawrence live on stream on the 24th of March, exactly a month after Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, everyone, and welcome to GLF Live. I'm Gabrielle Lipton, the editor of Landscape News for the Global Landscapes Forum. Today, we're here to get insight into a critical topic of this moment, which is the effect of the war in Ukraine on global food security. This war has been shocking and heartbreaking in many ways, but one of its most unique and terrifying ripple effects is on food, livestock feed, and fertilizer, and the amount of these crucial supplies that are trapped in the two countries, which are among the world's biggest producers and exporters of grain. Due to this, many experts have warned that this could soon lead to widespread famine, civil unrest, destabilization, and mass migration around the world. In a recent interview, the head of the World Food Program, David Beasley, succinctly said, if you think we've got hell on earth now, just get ready. Currently, global leaders are gathered in Brussels to address the war, and as part of that, the EU governments are drawing up plans to address the impending food crisis specifically and could have a proposal prepared by next Wednesday. So ahead of that, we're gathered here today to hear from leading food expert Lawrence Haddad about expectations for this situation and to learn more about its nuances and understand what solutions are available and needed most. Lawrence is the executive director of the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition, GAIN, and he's the founding co-chair and lead author of the Global Nutrition Report, and generally just a prolific food development and economics expert who, among many other roles, has sat on the UN Committee for World Food Security and in 2018 was awarded the prestigious World Food Prize. At the dawn of COVID, he spoke in a GLF Live on the effects of the pandemic on food systems, and he was spot on with all of his predictions then. So we're honored to have him back with us here today. Lawrence, thank you for joining us once again. Great to be here, Gabrielle. Great, so let's just dive in. When you first heard about Russia's invasion in Ukraine, what were your initial thoughts and reactions in terms of the impact it would have on food? Well, when you learn about food um, in college and university, uh, you're taught, one of the first things you're taught is that Ukraine is one of the breadbaskets of the world. So the first thought, I mean, apart from thinking what a tragedy is, is about to unfold for the Ukrainian people, the first thought was, you know, this, this fight is taking place in this breadbasket and everything is going to be disrupted. Uh, the lives of Ukrainians 
um, but also the lives of many people around the world because of the effect this will have on all the things you mentioned. Um, the, other, the other immediate thought I had was that, oh, we're going to see the weaponization of food. Because one of the other things we are taught about is that the different sieges that happened during World War II of cities being starved. And um, my immediate thought was this is probably going to happen to some uh, of the Ukrainian cities. And I think, I think that's what's happening. And uh, to me, that's just completely outrageous. Yes, absolutely. I think that term weaponization of food has been used increasingly and the public familiarity with it is unfortunately on the rise. Uh, in terms of your expectations, uh, building off of your initial thoughts and reactions, what have over time since the invasion started uh, become your predictions for the short and long-term impacts of this war? And what conflicts from the past perhaps informed those predictions? Well, you know, it's it's kind of hard to, to say because it's hard to get any information that's really, really up to date. Uh, if you look at the prices of food, the price of wheat, the price of the price of energy is, is the thing that is, you know, you can see that changing from day to day. It's really hard to see the price of food um, on a day-to-day -day basis. So and, and of course, it's even harder to figure out what, you know, how many people are missing meals and um, what's happening in markets. Uh, and it, it, this feels like COVID all over again. Uh, the, two years ago, when all the, all the markets were closed down, when lockdowns were being imposed, the first victim of, of the lockdown was information. We didn't know what was happening. Who's missing meals? Who isn't? What's happening to food prices? Which markets are closing down? what's happening to small and medium enterprises, what's happening to farmers in their fields. And it's the same thing all over again. Uh, this, this crisis just shows how feeble we are at measuring uh, what's happening to our food system in real time. So I don't have any really good answers for you. I've seen some of the FAO project, uh, projections uh, on food prices. And, you know, David Beasley's right from WFP, uh, we were already seeing incredible increases in hunger levels uh, in the 2021 uh, UN report on food, which projected a 20% increase in hunger. That's the biggest increase I think I've ever seen. And I've been doing this for a long time. And that was before what's happening in Ukraine. And that was because of COVID, uh, the emergency and climate, the, the grinding emergency that's making everything more fragile. And that has been, you know, pre-COVID, it was climate that was inching the numbers up on hunger. COVID supercharged that, and this 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 invasion is going to supercharge it even more. So, I've seen the numbers from FAO. They I think the numbers are really a big underestimate. Uh, the hungering the hunger numbers are projected to increase. I think it's something like ten or thirteen million. I think it's going to be more like fifty or sixty million extra people on top of on top of the increases that were projected. So for me, the word famine comes to mind a lot. And I don't think about the word famine too often because uh, you kind of think that those are a thing of the past. But I think we're going to be seeing that word famine a lot more in the press in the coming weeks and months. Mm. Well, it's heartbreaking. And I definitely want to get back to that later in this conversation and dig into that a bit more and specifically the parts of the world that will experience that most. But for now, I want to continue to set the foundation a bit more and to turn back to a phrase that you used at the beginning 
that this region, the Black Sea region, is the breadbasket of the world. Um, and it produces some 12% of all calories traded globally, which is a hefty amount. So with this supply now locked in these countries, can this gap be filled? And if so, how and by who? Again, really difficult question to answer. I don't know. Uh, if I don't know if the global supplies are sufficient to be released to, to make that up. I don't know if they if they can be released quickly enough. Usually these global supplies are really, uh, they're not very well managed. A lot of the supplies in them are degrading through food safety and a whole range of pesticide issues. Um, are they, and then can they, can the bureaucracy move quickly enough to free them up? And then if the bureaucracy can move quickly enough to free them up, will they all be snaffled up by domestic uh, consumers and by governments who want to understandably protect their, their own citizens but you know we have this phrase "beggar thy neighbor." Um, it's kind of a race to the bottom. If if exporting countries um, stop exports, everyone suffers, including the exporting country, uh, because it just triggers a trade war, whether it's a global trade war or a regional trade war. And that's really you know you've got to keep the food moving internally and across borders. That's the key thing. So. I, I don't know. Twelve percent is a lot to just put a lock on. Yeah, it's a massive, massive shock to the system. Yeah, it's hard to wrap your head around those numbers and foresee how they can be filled. I want to now turn back to what I mentioned before about looking at the regionalization of the effects of this crisis. And we've seen developing countries in the Middle East and Northern Africa uh, they're set to really experience this the most because they import so much of their food supplies from this region. For example, half of Africa's wheat imports come from the Ukraine. So how is this going to affect developing countries in these regions specifically? What, uh, what do you expect to see for nutrition, famine, hunger, et cetera? Well, um, again, a really big question. I mean, it's not just Africa as well. I was looking because um, we're we again we have nine offices in Africa and Asia, uh, and four four of them four of the nine are in Asia. And I was looking at the uh, the percentage of the wheat uh, that is consumed in those nine countries. What's the percentage of wheat consumed in those nine countries from Ukraine? And you know, Pakistan out of the top out of the gain countries, Pakistan is the top country. Um, that, ha that is most reliant on wheat, wheat from Ukraine. It's something like 40 or 50 percent. Uh, and for some of the African countries, so like Ethiopia is also quite dependent on Ukrainian exports of wheat, but then Ethiopians don't actually consume that much wheat. But Pakistani, Pakistan citizens consume a lot of wheat and a lot of it. So it's not just Africa. I think that's the first point. But uh, uh, what is going to hurt Africa a lot is is the uh, inability to get uh, the fertilizers that, that are needed. A lot of the minerals are from Ukraine and Russia. You know, and Russia is not also going to be is going to be preserving a lot of its food and uh, and um, fertilizer ingredients for its own domestic production. So a lot of that export will not be happening. So a lot of African countries won't be able to get fertilizers, which is I would say arguably even more important because it's, it constrains their own ability to produce food, let alone import food. So that's that's I'm really worried about that. And I haven't heard enough about that. 
Um, I, we need to keep an eye on fertilizer prices and fertilizer availability. The other thing I'd like to say is, you know, we, we call Ukraine a breadbasket, and some people have interpreted that very literally to say, you know, it's all about bread, but breadbaskets just literally, it's, it's a euphemism to say this region produces a lot of food. And it, it produces a lot more things than just cereals, and it exports a lot more things than just cereals. So the, the big message for me is that we need to diversify much more the production. We're very dependent, geopolitically, very dependent on five or six breadbaskets around the world. And then there need to be, you know, 20 breadbaskets around the world. It may not be the most efficient way of doing it, but it's the most resilient way of doing it. And I think we're at the stage now when you get to an uncertain context, an uncertain world, the, the watchword is diversification, diversification, diversification. So we have to diversify. So I think, I think ironically, this is a, actually a big opportunity for Africa as well to say, okay, we are, we are no longer going to be so dependent on, um, uh, on imports from one or two places outside of the continent. What can we do within the continent to really boost production? And if you look at the, the African investment uh, in agriculture, the most, most countries, most of the 54 African countries are way off the targets they set themselves. Uh, for the Malibu, they're called the Malibu targets. They're way off. I mean, four or five countries are doing really well, but the rest are are lagging behind. So here, if there were ever needed to be a real politic incentive to invest in agriculture, now is it. Because, as you know, uh, rising food prices and food price volatility in general is shown to be a really good predictor of social unrest and civil unrest and, mm -hmm. and maybe even conflict. Absolutely. And uh, you're starting to pivot into potential solutions. So let's just continue going in that direction. And we have been in this pandemic for about two years now. Have you seen any solutions arise for how we have um, uh, <laughs> managed or mismanaged the shock that the pandemic gave to our food systems that can be applied uh, to times of conflict like this as well? I, I you know, I think and, and this is going to sound awfully gain-centric, apologies to you and to your listeners and, and, and watchers, but when, when COVID struck, we developed a, a program of, of work called Keeping Food Markets Working. That, it's what it's, it, it does what it says on the tin. Uh, you have to keep food markets working. And so we did, we did three things that I think are highly relevant still for in, in this new emerging context. The first thing was to keep small and medium enterprises going. Small and medium enterprises are the lifeblood of the food system, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, they, they are going to be struggling to get access to inputs um, from farmers within their contexts and from farmers overseas. They're going to be struggling to get uh, a whole range of things, uh, and they're going to be struggling to get finance. So we need to keep them going with uh, loans, credit, even small grants. Um, folks within the food system who work within the food system, they're some of the most exploited people, some of the most exploited employees. The food price rises that we're going to see are really going to impact them. They're very poor. They may be employed, but they're very poor. And if the food price rises impact them dramatically, um, then the whole food system grinds to a halt. 
if they become sick because they can't get enough of the right food or their kids become sick and therefore they have to take care of them at home and they can't work, the whole food system of Africa just grinds to a halt. So we have to keep them, um, keep them um, protected as much as we can through um, food provided at the, in the workplace, through nutrition, education, through keeping breastfeeding uh, uh, safe spaces open. And then the third thing we need to do is keep food markets open. You know, food markets, some of them are going to, you know, it's not like COVID. We're keeping food markets open because COVID was threatening to close them all down because the protocols weren't in place. But still, the pressure on food markets is going to be intense as food prices spike. Um, consumers are not going to be able to buy the food. Um, there's, there's not going to be enough food to to keep open so so local authorities have to do whatever they can to help those food markets uh stay open to help the food keep the food flowing um so those are those are really important things on the on the demand side a lot of the things that happened uh were social protection programs cash programs cash transfer programs really ramped up during covid you know globally they went from 600 million people to 1.8 billion people yeah. So that's that same thing has to happen again, but in a more targeted way this time, because there are going to be some regions and some populations that are going to be um, more affected. You know, COVID was kind of a, like a blanket uh, crisis. This this crisis is going to be a little bit more targeted to those who are who have a very who spend a very high percentage of their food, a high percentage of their income on food. So we need to. Uh, expand social protection coverage, but in a, maybe in a more targeted way. And then finally, we need to, the final thing we need to do is, is, is help farmers, especially actually, especially the farmers in, in, in Ukraine. I mean, the farmers in Ukraine, their fields are full of metal mm -hmm. and, and, and sorry to be graphic, but full of dead, dead people and body parts. Um, we need to help them make those fields, clear the fields respectfully, um, make those fields um, able to be able to plant food. Uh, often they, they can't get the seeds. So FAO has a, has a good program that's, that's helping farmers clear their, their fields, giving them access to uh, seeds, including, including potato, uh, uh, potato peelings and the, the, the things that are important for potatoes but vegetables. We need to help those Ukrainian farmers get their, their fields back in order. And for that to happen, of course, we come right back to the source of the problem. The war has to end. Uh, and of course, a lot of people are working very hard to make that happen as we speak. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And yes, it absolutely does need to end. Uh, but I really appreciate you digging into some of these other solutions that can also span out over the long term as well. I'll ask one more question myself, and then for all of our listeners, we'll have a few minutes for audience questions at the end. So however you're listening, if you would like to drop in a question or two into the chat, we can field those um, after this next question of mine. And that is at the government level, especially as the allies and President Biden are meeting in Brussels as we speak, uh, what would you like to see coming from that level to help this crisis, aside from just the peacekeeping negotiations and whatever they can do to help this war come to a close? Is it just subsidies or price control on food, or are there other efforts that governments can take um, to help 
to help us all be able to afford food and stay, um, yeah, stay healthy. Keep, keep trade open, really important. Um, yeah, trade's important to keep food prices down. Until we have a more diversified production, keep trade open, do whatever you can. Um, that means being a bit more um, relaxed about some of the tariffs. It means being a bit more relaxed about some of the standards, the phyto safety standards. Um, it just means some of the some of the flexibility you've shown uh, around uh, Ukraine and its membership to the EU and fast tracking a whole range of things. You've got to do. You've got to be flexible when it comes to the food system as well. Um, that's the first thing. I think the second thing is don't make humanitarian organizations beg for money you know mm -hmm. don't make them beg for money and get give them the money when it's too late give them the money now back them uh, trust them they know what they're doing they're doing it all for all the right reasons just give them the money they need um i, I think uh, and that includes the cash for social protection and i think this is like every crisis is an opportunity and i think this is an opportunity for governments to get behind African governments and for African governments to get behind their own farmers and then for other governments to get behind African governments uh, to say this now is the time to re-energize your agriculture not just re-energize it but actually make it much more regenerative uh, so it's it, we talked a lot about building back better during COVID uh, and I never was really comfortable with that language um, but building back better is comfortable is is a more comfortable language when things have been decimated, and I think um, in Ukraine and uh, a lot, obviously a lot of things have been decimated. But in in Africa, we need to rebuild the the investment in agriculture to make it more regenerative, uh, less dependent on fossil fuel, so so generate less carbon, but also be less dependent on carbon. Uh, and make it more nutritious because again when when agriculture and food systems are disrupted the first thing to go is nutritious food because nutritious food is the most perishable so make your your food systems more nutritious uh, and then the final thing i would say is don't forget about kids under the age of three when you when you're in a crisis response mode you you i think i think actors tend to see all people as as equal uh, but they're not some people are much more vulnerable and um, young children are especially vulnerable the crisis that affects them if it's not ameliorated in the first three years of life they carry that crisis throughout the rest of their lives and many of the people involved in the crisis right now will carry the emotional trauma with them for the rest of their lives no matter what their age are, is but the kids will carry the um, the physical trauma with them, as well as the emotional trauma for the rest of their lives. And we must really try hard to focus on those first three years, the first thousand days of life, um, and think about what we can do, especially uh, for those kids. And um, I haven't even begun to talk about the humanitarian crisis because of all the displaced people uh, in, in Europe and, and elsewhere. Um, that's, that's a tragedy in and of itself as well. But um, for 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 African kids, you know, my my colleagues in the Micronutrient Forum have just released a nice blog called Nutrition Under Siege, and I think it's a brilliant title. It's called Nutrition Under Siege again because the first time it was under siege 
was because of COVID. And we saw a 14 million um, increase in the number of wasted kids projected because of COVID. Uh, that's a massive increase. I could see something like that happening again um, because of this crisis. So we have to protect those kids and we have to make sure that nutrition is, is not under siege as, as so many people in Ukraine unfortunately will be. Mm -hmm. The nutrition under siege again. So like it's a sad but great title. <laughs> Indeed. Well, thank you for covering so much ground in that last answer. Um, you were mentioning the um, shortfall of budget for some of these humanitarian organizations. And I was reading the other day that the World Food Program lacks $8 billion um, in their budget due to COVID, due to climate, due to war. And so, yes, hopefully the government's meeting will find a way to fill that gap in funding that's so crucial. A question that's coming in that kind of pivots off something you just said, um, but is is anyone going to be spared from the food crisis? Are there any regions of the world that might not feel the effects of this, or are we are all going to be shaken by it? Well, I think we're all going to feel it. Most of us who are in well-off occupations won't, won't be shaken by it, but we're all going to feel it. We're all going to see food prices going up everywhere. I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. Those of us who spend uh, 15 or 20 percent of our income on food are not going to feel it as much as those who spend 70 percent of their income on food. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that, that, that generalizable, um, the reason I feel confident saying that is because the price of energy is going up for everyone. And you know, so much of food production, processing, distribution, marketing, retailing is dependent on energy. Absolutely. Another question uh, commenting or asking about something that you just said, but are options like permaculture relevant in conflict situations? Well, I mean, I don't know much about permaculture, I have to be honest, but I do think any crisis situation makes us think and rethink, uh, are the things we're doing the right things to be doing? And I think anything that, anything that reduces the fragility of food systems uh, is is going to be really at, at a premium. Um, so anything that doesn't waste resources, anything I mean, I'm a anything that it adheres to the principles of agroecology. Uh, it feels like the the time is right now to really push those those principle principles because they're all about diversification, risk mitigation, circular circularity. Those principles seem to be. The principles that we need in the in the 21st century think about this millennium i saw a t-shirt the other day someone was wearing saying uh, can i send this can i send the third millennium back because it seems like um that period after the fall of the berlin wall in 1989 right through to to, to 9 11 about those 12 or 13 years people were talking about the end of history and there was a lot of sort of uh congratulatory backslapping we all thought Kind of, we've kind of cracked it, you know, um, and of course the since two thousand and one, it's just been uh, calamity after calamity, and uh, I think we are in for a period of turbulence that will last another decade or so. And so, it feels to me like you know the the time for resilience, diverse diversification, circularity, uh, reducing food waste, all of these kinds of um, low impact um, production 
systems are, are really going to gain a lot of traction. The price we may have to pay for that is a higher price of food because they are the, they're probably less uh, economically efficient than the industrialized processes. But the industrialized processes have too many environmental costs, too many health costs, and too many resilience costs because they're so concentrated. So a long waffly answer to a good question. Lawrence, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure to uh, hear your expertise and your insights. We really appreciate you taking the time. Our thoughts go out to everyone affected by war and conflict around the world. As you heard from Lawrence, the ongoing war in Ukraine is already having a drastic knock-on effect on global food prices that could force millions of people into starvation. So it's crucially important that we protect farmers who are struggling to afford fertilizer and livestock feed so that they can continue to feed the world. And most importantly of all, the war has to end. If you enjoyed our conversation, stay tuned for a new episode next week about another very timely topic, how to prevent the next pandemic. Be sure to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, and reach out to us on social media with the hashtag GLFLive. And for everything you need to know about landscapes, ecosystems, and climate change, just head to our website, globallandscapesforum.org. That's it for today. We'll see you on the next one.